With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as you all well know by this time, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors of the Academy as well as vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering several broad topics along with our right lightning round. As always, we include questions and comments from you, our audience. Uh, if you'd like to place a question during the call, please dial into us at area code 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. One of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present you, our members and listeners, with concrete, actionable ideas. Today we're going to be focusing on several topics, one of which is a continuation from last month, and that's the geopolitics, the international side of oil, nuclear, and as Ronaldo says, other misguided technologies, then, in our second topic, we're going to be touching on the reality of climate change and how it will affect you. And today, during our expanded lightning round, which is a series of quick economic insights and comments on major asset classes, such as bonds, dollar, energy, and real estate, we'll focus both on commodities and also the housing situation. Ronaldo, one of the purposes of these monthly calls is to present to our members actionable, concrete actionable ideas that reflect the World Business Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices on business and society to the public at large. Can you expand upon this for our audience today and explain exactly what this means or entails given today's political and economic climate? Oh, certainly, Howard. Thank you for that introduction and, and welcome to everybody on the show today. Uh, I hope all of you enjoy the show and and if you do enjoy it, please tell at least one or two friends that they can obtain this show also by getting the tape delay. And to get a copy of any of our shows, just go to the World Business Academy website, worldbusiness.org, and pull down the show of your choice. Uh, they're all there, and they're all available with no charge to the listener. Uh, it, the, the biggest question that people need to focus on today in the midst of – I'm going I'm to address this, Howard, initially to the U.S. audience, but then I'm going to broaden it to the international, as you know. From the U.S. audience's perspective, people are looking at what has gone wrong with the recovery that has stalled. And, and there are many political answers to that question, um, the intransigence in Congress to do anything to support the recovery, in fact, to take steps that are trying to basically end the recovery for political advantage. Uh, but there's an even more fundamental thing, and this applies to the international audience as well. We need to start looking much more carefully at the role of fossil fuels in our economy. Let me show you what I mean by that. The recovery, as bad as it has been hobbled by the political intractability in Washington and by the mass layoffs at the state level, which has been going on at a rapid rate for two years now, even those things would have been able to be surmounted but for the implications of gas rising, uh, actually oil rising from $75 a barrel to $102 a barrel. 
Yeah. Actually, day after the election, Ronaldo, let me point out, it was actually $70 a barrel. 70, and 70. Zero. 70, so and the day after the election is when the Saudi oil minister announced that they'd be more comfortable with it at 90. Yeah, and, and, and so what what we really have here, if you if you do the math of a $32 rise on a $70 base, that's almost a 50% increase in the price of oil. Now, what's that done to the economy in the United States and to the rest of the developing world? Well, what it's done, and by the way, an even worse impact to the, undeve- to the, to the, to the world that is not yet fully developed are the emerging economies because their proportionate cost for fuel both for transportation and to heat their food, is disproportionately higher than it is in the industrial West or in in even large portions of Asia. So what we've got going here is a a world, a globe, a planet, where its fossil fuel system, primarily driven by oil, can, because of the the handiwork of very few people, can cause enormous economic disruptions. And in order to see, as we said in our show last month, what an enormously powerful impact the oil industry has on the United States, the United States Congress and the democratically controlled Senate right there with the Republican-controlled House was unable to remove a paltry $2 billion subsidy to oil in one bill that failed to pass, even though the oil industry is by far the most audaciously profitable to the point of egregiously profitable industry in the face of the earth. Now, the fact that they wouldn't let the government take back even a little of a subsidy, we're not talking a tax raise, we're talking about a subsidy to them, indicates the political power of the oil industry in the United States, particularly in the face of the fact that for the last two years, that same industry has increased the price of its raw commodity to us by almost 50%. Now, that explains the horrendous, egregious profits in the tens and tens and tens of billions per quarter of the major oil companies in the U.S., and it's a great transition to what's going on in the global arena. Today's subject was the implications of the geopolitics of oil, nuclear, and other misguided technologies. So starting with oil on the, uh, geopolitically on the, in, on, the, on the international level, what we know is that the implications of those rising oil prices – impact enormously on those countries who are most dependent on fossil fuels. So those countries that are dependent on fossil fuels for the very uh, survival of their key sectors in society uh, are the ones that are going to be the most damaged, and they are the ones who are becoming, I would think, the most extreme. Other sectors of the global community are acutely aware of how to use the power of oil and the power of the revenues of oil for their own domestic political purposes, totally apart from the the harm it does to the global economy. Let me give you an example. We just came through the OPEC meeting last week, the first time in 30 years that OPEC has been unable to reach an agreement on, in effect, increasing the amount of production because of the number of countries now whose production has fallen offline. Uh, Obviously, the most prominent being Libya, a million and a half barrels a day has gone away. Uh, Syria is in jeopardy on its uh, 265,000 barrels a day. Yemen is, in, I think, is already shut down on its 220,000 barrels a day. And you have these other situations bubbling around the world where it looks to me like we we are even in a declining industrial environment, which typically reduces oil consumption. We're probably about a half a million barrels of oil a day short. 
Where did I come with that number? Well, that's what the Saudis quietly started pumping about a few months ago in excess of their allotment under OPEC, just so things wouldn't get so tight that the price of oil would shoot to the $130 levels that it was headed towards. Why did the Saudis do that and what's going on? Well, first, let's look at OPEC. So the OPEC meeting was really not about the price of oil because if you look at the statistics, virtually nobody is capable of pumping more oil right now than Saudi Arabia. Why? Kuwait and United Arab Emirates, they're already pumping it close to their max. You've already got Venezuela, who's been declining in its pumping ability for a number of years because the oil sector is not well-maintained. You know, there are large countries like Brazil who haven't brought that oil fully online yet. and won't be, It'll be years before it gets here. So when you get through all looking at all the, all the countries that have oil <clears throat> that are major producers, thank goodness the thing's happening to Algeria at this point because that would be a big, big, big dislocation. We've always assumed there was about a 2.5 million barrel per day uh, kind of like cushion in Saudi Arabia. That's been the accepted, and Saudi put that out, accepted idea of what's available as a cushion. Well, that cushion's being invaded now. So the Saudis go to OPEC, having always been able to control it, and with the only really fields capable of boosting by a million barrels a day, which is what they're asking for. And OPEC says no. Why? Because the geopolitics of oil now are more about the fact that the Iranians can't pump any more oil, so they won't get any more money, and the price will come down if more oil gets pumped, so they'll actually get less money, which is true of every other country that pumps. They'll be making less per barrel. The Saudis would like to see the price come down from the 102 level that it's at down to probably around 90, although they don't want it to go way back to where it was at the 70 level. Why don't they want it to go back? And I think, Howard, you were just referring to an interesting article. Yes, uh, let me talk about that for a second, if you yeah. may, Ronaldo. Uh, just in the New York Times, uh, just yesterday, there was an interesting piece about how in Saudi Arabia, the royal family is using excess oil revenue, uh, which was really dollars coming from the rest of the world, uh, to buy peace and uh, security internally in their country. So you have a situation where in almost every North African Arab country you have unrest uh, on the rise. In Saudi Arabia, you have quiet. And the simple reason for this is that the king's oil revenue reserves were swollen by some $214 billion in oil revenue the past year. And they have then turned around and spent $130 billion of that to pump up salaries, build, hina- fi- I'm sorry, build housing, and finance conservative religious organizations um, to, effen- to effectively neutralize the opposition to the king. Uh, and in essence, we, the consumers in the United States, who have now suffered through a 50% rise, are essentially the ones buying off the radicals or the liberationists in Saudi Arabia and keeping everyone quiet. And that $200 billion plus excess surplus that Power just referred to, that's on top of the normal surplus. That's, that, that's sort of what we would call in the West the windfall surplus, because Saudi Arabia already is living it in it with its 500 princes at a level of standard of living with every citizen in their, in their monarchy, in their kingdom, living at a style of life that, that, that most in the West, if not all, would envy. So what you're talking about in the geopolitics of oil is you're saying, and this is why it's the topic for today, I want everybody who listens to the show to understand we're no longer free to let the oil markets do what the oil markets do in the quiet, dark, behind the closed curtain. What I wanted to do with today's show was to really shine a spotlight on how incredibly important the politics of oil are and how that is affecting the global economy and holding us back in ways that we ever, never, ever realized were this powerful. 
when you have countries like Iran and Saudi Arabia fighting over power on the control of oil, because one is Shiite in the case of Iran and one is Sunni in the case of the Saudis, you're talking about oil as a weapon, but the weapon's increasingly being turned on the consumer to pay for the excesses of the weaknesses of the system that the exploration and production nations really have to deal with. Now, I believe if people will start to look at this and realize the overwhelming significance of the planetary fuel system being oil-based, fossil fuel-based, that includes coal and natural gas we'll get to in a second, if you look at it that way, you realize we will never, ever, ever get out of this misery. In other words, the collective human economic condition will, I predict, continue to go down until we break the geopolitical stranglehold of oil at the international level and at the domestic level, which means we go to renewables. And as we do that, we will unleash wealth greater than we have ever dreamed possible, not only in the United States and in the developing Western nations, but in the rest of the world as well. It will happen, one would assume, if we aren't destroyed by climate change in the meantime. That's the big overwhelming factor. Let me just touch on quickly a couple places where you see this geopolitics of power connecting. So we know the geopolitics of oil. We've just gone through that. And I'd love if there's any questions, let's talk about it at length, about the ins and outs of what happened in Saudi or what happened when they met in Vienna with OPEC and why two ministers ended up showing up for Libya, but neither one could represent the government of Libya because the government of Libya's chief minister for oil just defected. I mean, the, the, the insanity of what's going on in the Middle East where all the oil is controlled, means that we are literally dancing on the edge of a catastrophic house of cards. And what we're doing is paying an increasing price in the price of oil to maintain stability in that world, both militarily and by the excess surpluses we're pumping to the Saudis and others. We are, we are creating an artificial stability which could come crashing down on a moment's notice, and even if it doesn't come crashing down, is strangling us slowly but surely because the price of oil is what's cratered the economies globally and has continued to do so. Ronaldo, let me point out another interesting piece that came out this week. Uh, the first one was in uh, Science Digest, uh, which is a website that tracks science progress all around the world, and it noted that because of the high price of oil, that the break-even point or the, the comparable uh, break-even point between oil and alternative technologies was almost equalized. And so that you had a point now where it was now almost as cost-effective to use alternative energies as oil in the broad strokes. It was after that news story came out that the Saudis then put pressure to move oil back down towards 90 and you can look at that in the context of, let's say, like a Walmart that moves into a new neighborhood, cuts prices um, in an effort to drive out local businesses, and then raises those prices again. And here you have this ongoing pattern over years where the spiking up and down of oil tends to destabilize the competition by not allowing them to find a stable price point uh, to compete at. Well, and, and, and Howard, I just want to make one correction. I don't, I don't believe that renewables, and I specifically mean wind, which we know for a fact can be produced at about 4.3 cents per kilowatt hour, and we know for a fact that geothermal, the incremental cost is about 5 cents or less per kilowatt hour. Right now, if the playing field were even, oil wouldn't have a chance. The rush to renewables would be, would be the equivalent of the Oklahoma line rush. The problem is the playing field is not equal, and that's why we've been talking about the geopolitics of oil. We've been talking about the politics of Washington, 
again, the $2 billion subsidy, which was a fraction of the $16 billion yearly that they get, that, that a $2 billion subsidy can't be taken back from an industry that makes hundreds of billions of dollars in profits per quarter. And that's after, by the way, those, those profit calculations you hear, that's after paying for fleets of corporate jets. That's after paying their, their CEOs $20, $30, $40 million a year. That's after paying uh, uh, horrendous salaries to their senior executive teams and, and, and a slush fund of expenses that no small business could ever even understand, let alone uh, accept. So all and that's going be, on. And, what and we being need able to, do, to influence lawmakers through uh, almost unlimited contributions now. That's right, exactly. And, and so that creates – and it's happening there. And then the politics of that, when you blow it up to the geopolitical level internationally, means that whole countries – are doing that to each other in the context of this bigger oil game. And the only way to end this craziness, this misery, as I call it, is for us to step out of a planetary fuel system that is fossil fuel-based. So one way that you can start to step out of it, which I think the public's beginning to accept, is a tax on carbon. If you were to tax, if you were to tax uh, carbon because of its, the subsidy of the pollution and the medical costs from having to cure the problems that carbon creates, a tax, and by the way, you could you could keep that tax. You could put you could put that tax into renewable energy, or if you want, as Jim Hansen says, you could take that tax and declare a dividend for every American adult. And probably very modest tax would produce two to three thousand dollars a year for every adult in America, as an example. So it, it's not a bad thing to have a carbon tax. It's a good thing because what it does is it creates the only way that you can even the playing field when the political process can't even reduce subsidies right now. So let's just call it ace and ace, and let's do what we have to do, which is we have to absolutely tax this thing because it's causing so much destruction. Same thing would be true, by the way. The, the, one of the reasons natural gas is so cheap is because of fracking. The country of France has already made it illegal. I believe Germany will do the same. I believe any country that looks at it thoughtfully will do it. The first, first thorough report on fracking that came out in the last two weeks indicates that there is no question, zero, that the reason why water is catching fire in certain areas of Pennsylvania is because of fracking. The injections of hundreds of thousands of, of gallons of highly carcinogenic diesel fuels and other chemicals, which is causing the water literally to catch fire. And if Ronaldo, anybody... You, Ronaldo, let me ask you, if, can you backtrack a, a step or two for those of our listeners who may not quite understand what fracking is? Can you explain that process? Oh, sure, yeah. And why it's different from standard drilling? Yeah, uh, uh, fracking is a, is a term, it stands for hydraulic fracturing. And, and what hydraulic fracturing is, is when you take and you inject under tremendous pressure highly toxic chemicals with, this, with, with, with water or seawater, and you basically fracture rock structures under the ground in order to release small amounts of natural gas molecules contained within each portion of the rock structure. So if you blow up a lot of rock, you get a lot of natural gas. The problem is, even if you try to suck all those harmful chemicals out, which by law they're not required to do yet, and if you want to believe something that's really obscene, in the U.S., the defense of the natural gas industry for why putting carcinogenic chemicals into the ground and having it, everybody agrees now, migrate to the water table, is because the EPA hasn't adopted rules to make it illegal yet. If you can believe that, First of all, what an indictment of the EPA. They should rush a rulemaking. But the point is that fracturing of rock using toxic chemicals then goes into the water table, into the water that you and I drink. And there is not even a standard today in the world that I know of, but certainly not in the U.S., for the maximum amount of carcinogenic material you can do that with. In fact, 
it is a pretty well-guarded secret at this point still what the exact composition of all those chemicals is, although we haven't been able to identify quite a few of them, and the list is quite, quite, quite toxic. So what you're asking people to do is to look the other way so that natural gas will be cheaper, but the water they drink will be more dangerous. Undoubtedly, cancer rates will go up, and as the cancer rates go up, what will happen is that people will find that they're paying a medical expense to subsidize the carbon fuel called natural gas when you obtain it by fracking. So if you can obtain natural gas through other means, basically through wells that you drill in the normal fashion, it is a slightly cleaner fuel than oil, about half as clean, by the way. And that, too, should be taxed at half the rate because neither one of them is as clean as wind or solar. I could go on, but I think the idea that what I wanted to get through to was that let's go to the biggest topic of the day, which is Fukushima, the nuclear plants in Fukushima. And to give people in the United States some idea of how bad this problem is for them, there are 104 nuclear reactors in America sited in 65 plants around the country. At least a dozen of them are so dangerous they should be closed. Half of those plants, by the way, are 30 years into their 40-year license period, and they're all asking for another 30 to 40 years, even though I believe at least 30 of them are the identical, identical GE Mark III boiling water reactors that went up in smoke in Fukushima, and even though Many of the plants I just referred to, including two in California, have a maximum ability to withstand an earthquake at 7.0 when California has experienced earthquakes as high as 8.3 in the past. And by the way, 8.3 is 120 times more powerful than 7.0. So you're talking about plants, San Onofre, for example, and Diablo in California, who are routinely looking for another 30 years of licensing. In the case of, of uh, San Onofre, they don't even have an adequate seawall protector, even though there is a fault line right off the California coast, identical to the fault line off of Fukushima, to create the tsunami. So you've got a situation with San Onofre and Diablo, which is ridiculously dangerous. You've got the same thing, like the most dangerous plant, of course, is the one in New York, Indian Point. So uh, all these extremely dangerous plants exist, and we haven't decided to get off of them. Why? Because we bought a false belief that somehow nuclear was clean, when in fact it's neither clean nor cheap. So to give you some idea, it, t- it takes about eight or $9,000 per kilowatt hour to, to build a plant. So if you want to build a plant with megawatts, you're going to have an expense, you're going to have a three, $4 billion plant if everything works right. And you're still not going to be able to get rid of the <clears throat> toxic waste for thousands and thousands of years, and who are you going to pay to store it? Oh, and by the way, when you store it at a place like Fukushima, that's what creates all the nuclear upset that happened there. So we have, a, we have got to start looking at the politics of fuel. And that's what this whole conversation is about, the politics of fuel, both domestically in each individual country and in the aggregate at a global international level. And the economy that we want, as well as the safety we want, will elude, will elude us until we're ready to get on with what we know is the next step, and that's renewables. I want to end this with just a quick observation. For those who didn't see it, the cover of The Economist on May 28th was called, it was a picture of the Earth, looked like it was being bolted together, and it said, Welcome to the Anthropocene, meaning the Anthropocene Age. This is the cover story of The Economist, which most people would consider to be a fairly thoughtful, somewhat fairly conservative economic journal, probably one of the best ones in the world. And what they're saying is we've entered an era 
which we didn't realize but now exists, where the Earth and all, all the entire planetary system is a sub-function of the, anthropo- of the human interface. And what it says is that in the Anthropocene age, we do longer ha- no longer have the luxury of ignoring those things which we do that are incredibly stupid. Because when you do something incredibly stupid, and you live in a time when the collective impact of human society is negligible, then nature will forgive and you'll get over it. We're, we're past that point. And it's not just because of climate change, although that's the big part of it. It's also because of all the subsystems in the planetary sphere that we've now created that are dependent upon human interaction. Example, those species which are deemed to be useful by human society continue to proliferate and expand at a huge rate. Cows, goats, sheep. Those species which are, which are deemed to be of little use or of unknown use are having an extinction rate faster than anything in any prior period of history on the planet. So even though the human beings, as the economist points out, have only been around for 1% of 1% of the time the planet's been around, in that short period of time, 1% of 1%, we have now created a situation where everything on the planet, every environmental system, every economic system, every system that we have is completely dependent on the smart or dumb choices we collectively make. It's the purpose of this show every month to help us focus on what those choices can be that are better, and by making better choices, create the world we'd like to live in, and more importantly, the one we're willing to leave to our grandchildren. Ronaldo, let me ask you a question. Do you feel, given this scenario, optimistic about the future or pessimistic about the future? I'm, um, I'm an optimist by nature, and um, so I always choose to believe that human society will wake up as soon as humanly possible, and I pray that that is sooner rather than later. Uh, as you know, Howard, I'm a big fan of geoengineering. Some people don't like that word because they don't quite understand it. Geoengineering just means <clears throat> thoughtfully creating positive outcomes with science to start undoing the horrific damage we've done to the planet. Can you and I don't support geoengineering. Spell it, if you wouldn't mind. The first part of it. Geo, G-E-O. Oh, geo, geo, okay. Geoengineering, the science of restoring planetary stability and systems. So of the 150-some proposed geoengineering concepts, I've only seen two so far that have value, meaning that don't have enormous potential negative side effects and do, in fact, have some hope for being able to reverse the enormous amount of damage we've done to the planet. Now, that was in response to your question, am I optimistic or pessimistic? If I were to be very realistic, here's what I'd have to say, that on the trajectory we are on, within less than 15 years, 1.3 billion people on the planet who survive on glacial meltwater will go without water. That means that 1.3 billion people will die or fight their neighbors for access to water. And we'll be doing a special on water in in an upcoming show, if not the next one, Howard. Uh, In addition to that enormous statistic, 1.3 billion, in less than 15 years. That's not not like something you should worry about 80 years from now. 
It's getting pretty close, you know, actually. It's very close. Uh, it, the, it, look at this year, Howard, in terms of climate change. This year, we, we already have lost, this is interesting now, in a year when we've had enormous floods, 359 dead people in Huntsville, Alabama, from hurricanes and tor- from uh, tornadoes that have never gotten that far south anywhere close to that early in the year. Most severe hurricane season in modern record. Yes. Uh, tornado season, excuse me. Tornado. Includes Joplin with 142 dead there. And then on top of that, in a different part of the country, because the climate is so destabilized, we've lost 3.9 million acres to forest fires. That's uh, To give you some idea, the second highest year in history was only 2.6 million. By the way, that was only five years ago. And the third highest in history was only nine years ago at 1.3 million. Do you see the trend there? The average forest acre. Hmm? It's getting worse faster. Yeah. In fact, if you take a trend line from the year 2001 to the year 2011, what it says is, and and you eliminate year-to-year fluctuations because they're stacking up pretty evenly, it's almost 2.7 times more fire acres destroyed by fire 10 years later. 270% increase. So you're talking about an enormous change in fire because we have drought. Uh, There was a report released just two days ago that the northern Rocky Mountain Range, they've now traced it back to the year 1200, the snowpack. And what they've discovered is the snowpack is so thin in the northern Rockies that the, the amount of water that's been flowing down for the last two decades, actually the last 30 years, is dropping consistently year over year which makes sense because part of the destabilizing effect of climate change is that we keep changing the jet stream. See, when the jet stream moves around, which it's done radically this year, and last year it did some a little bit, but this year it's really going radical, what happens is you get these really aberrant weather patterns everywhere. So you can go from enormous drought conditions, two-thirds of three-quarters of Australia, to Brisbane being underwater for four, three and a half, four weeks. You can go from tornadoes in Alabama and Joplin and a thin snowpack in the northern Rockies. You can go from wildfires that are sweeping across Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas to uh, places where, like the Missouri River, they're afraid is going to inundate a million-plus acres in the next week or so. The Mississippi Ronaldo, River, let me just finish. The Mississippi yep. River, which they just got just nearly skated by a huge one by creating breaks in the levee to divert some of the water, is now filling up with silt so fast, it's possible they won't be able to get all the silt out of there in order to get all the ships upriver. It's a, it's a big, big problem that people are realizing. So it keeps mounting one on top of the other on top of the other. And all of this flows from our fossil fuel addiction including the fact that our economy is deteriorating and deteriorating. People are going broke because they're, because fossil fuel companies are getting so bloody rich. At some point, people have to wake up and say, no more. We want our world back. We want our nation back. Uh, there's a lot more to talk about the global warming issue or the, the denial of global warming. I want to get back to that after we do our lightning round, if that's all right. Sure. And first, let me remind our listeners that if you'd like to place a uh, I'm sorry, raise a question. We'd be happy to talk to you. And the number to dial in is 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key and then we will cue you in at the appropriate moment. 
And by the way, let me, like, let me add, Howard, to I did last week. Please, if you listen to these programs, as the vast majority of you do on tape delay, don't hesitate to send us a, a question. We'll read that question over the air, and when you go to listen to the show a few days later, the answer will be there. You don't have to be live to send us a question. We're happy to answer questions even if we're not live. So please know that all questions are welcome. Go ahead, Howard. And you can simply go to the worldbusiness.org website for more information on how to contact us and also how to download past shows. Again, that's worldbusiness.org. Again, our lightning round is supposed to be a series of quick economic insights and comments on our major asset classes. And today we're going to be focusing a little bit on both commodities and the uh, housing market. But uh, let's start with the housing market first, Ronaldo. Well, the housing market is um, you know, there's a there's a big um, report coming out on Tuesday, which I'm not looking forward to, um, which uh, which is the average home price report, and it could show that uh, we are going to hit a new low in the average price of houses. Uh, up until now, the low was uh, two years ago, 2009. Uh, we came back off the bottom of that because of some government programs that worked extremely well. Obviously, those programs have not been renewed by the Congress, and so um, the pressure. Of uh, the foreclosures and the pressure of people losing faith in the in having home ownership as a key item of their of their of their wealth uh, is driving prices further down. Um, I think um, the fact that new construction for single family dwellings is down um, from the prior months and from this year over last year, I think that's a good thing because we still have a ton of houses that we have to absorb from foreclosures. And by the way. Um, the foreclosure numbers have definitely bottomed out. We, we are definitely the, the, the worst of the foreclosure crisis. We said that three months ago this, that we, would be, we were passing through the bottom of that, and we did. I think the, the evidence is now solid and it's in. We have the, the crest of the wave of foreclosures is behind us, and there will be fewer foreclosures in 2012 than there were in 11, 11 fewer than 10. So we're starting to sop up that, that huge foreclosure overhang. And unless some major economic instability doesn't occur in the next two years, which it could, but if, if we don't have another major instability, I believe the foreclosures will continue to mop themselves up. Now, at the same time, however, the single-family dwelling houses have been going down with because people, why would you be building new houses when you can't sell the old ones? And the value of the old ones is dropping. You would. So that the fact that new construction is down is irrelevant, and it, it hurts, I think, in the unemployment picture, but it doesn't have to say anything about the general economy. And, and the real good thing you want to look at is in the same month, actually in the same day that that statistic was released where we were down at another 11%, I think, we were up 21% higher in the construction of multi-unit dwellings. In other words, what's happening in the housing market in the U.S. is a switch from single-family suburban dwellings to where people are going, you know what, I think I'll just rent somewhere closer to my job. And what you're going to see is, I think, a shift because of the price of gas and, frankly, a shift in, in consumer behavior. I believe you're going to see a fewer percentage of people wanting to own homes. And what the, you're going to see is more and more rental units. And, and um, when you look at rental units, you look at the economics of rental units, multi-dwelling rental units make more sense than single-family homes that you would rent out. So I'm looking forward to this transition because there's some benefits that will accrue, including, uh, and I feel sorry for the people who bought houses at a far, far distance from where they work, because the idea of commuting from home to suburbs, which was really started only after World War II, that trend, which has been with us now for 60, 70 years, is reversing. And what you're going to see is you're going to see a reinvigoration of urban areas, 
You're going to see more transportation and transit projects. And I think you're going to see more rational transportation policy where there will be fewer people driving around in big chunks of metal called cars, great distances, consuming lots of oil, which is very bad for a foreign balance of payments. And you'll see more people getting closer to where they work. And that is going to drive huge sectors of the U.S. economy, including housing. What's some other ones on the lightning round we want to hit, Howard? Well, uh, let me just yeah, – let's go on to commodities just in general. Oh, boy, I'd love we, to. Oh, before commodities, as, a, as an investment, would you recommend people getting into real estate now, uh, buying second homes, third homes, real estate for investment property? And also, um, you know, given the low interest rates, is this a good time to be a buyer? Okay. First of all, if you are buying and have job stability – and you can see five years or more into the future, five or ten years in the future, making the decision under the current tax laws to buy a home today makes good sense. I, it's funny. I um, I was just speaking to a young couple who were getting married literally today. I was at a party for them last night, and they were telling me about a house they just bought. And I congratulated them because they both have stable jobs. The house that they bought, um, they, they're buying it at all-time low in interest rates, as you know, Howard. And they're and they're and, and they're buying a, a a a home in this case a condo, but that's a that's a that's a fee simple ownership. It's a multi dwelling fee simple ownership, but it's a fee simple ownership. They're buying it at the po- at the lowest possible price in the market. So if the market drops another five or ten percent this year, which it could, it won't affect them for the five years out unless other severe adverse economic things happen. Now. Severe economic adverse things could happen, and as soon as we're done with the lightning round, I want to talk about the debt ceiling limit issue. But 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 assuming that, that the Republicans in Congress get their wits about them, and I think they will because the Chamber of Commerce will tell them to relatively soon, and then we will have a debt ceiling limit increase because we will. And as we do, some of the uncertainty will come out of the of, of several key sectors of the economy, particularly the housing market. But as of today, if you assume there will be no traumatic economic activity, uh, which could happen if we blew through the debt ceiling, it could happen if we failed to adopt a budget. If several other things could happen, I can see, which could cause traumatic economic events. But if you believe that there's just going to be a slow housing market for the next five years, but you have a good job, and you're going to be close to where you have that job, it makes perfect sense to buy your own housing unit today at these incredibly low rates and take advantage of the tax benefits that come with it. Absolutely, I buy it. Conversely, if you're buying for investment, Howard, I'm nervous. Okay. And and if you want to buy for investment, uh, which I've been looking at now for the last, oh, about four or five months, I'm beginning and I've seen very attractive multi-unit dwellings. If you like the idea or have the ability to manage a multi-unit dwelling, meaning you can manage an apartment building, Time has been really great to do that for at least the last six to nine months. Uh, I made a comment about that, uh, gosh, still back in 2010, that I I saw that as an opportunity. It continues to be an opportunity. The only downside is you won't get the leverage you used to get with bank debt, but you can still get leverage. And if you like the idea of running an apartment building, i got to tell you, that's a great way to go for the future. Before we move on, we do have a call-in question. And it's from area code 805, and the last four digits are 9932. I'm going to open up your line right now. Please introduce yourself and ask us your question. Thank you. Go ahead. Uh, hmm. Did not clear through for some reason. I guess that caller got off the line before we cleared through. Okay. Well, let's move well, on. Hopefully, they'll call back. Go ahead. Yeah. 
If they do, I'll signal you again. Um, let's move on. You wanted to talk uh, about commodities a little bit. Yeah, well, let's just really quickly do commodities. First of all, I've talked about this a couple times in the past, and I think there's still some confusion, so I want to come back to it. The word commodities is too broad. Commodities basically are all the basic things that go into the economy. So lumber is a commodity. Oil is a commodity. Um, soybeans, corn are all commodities. Silver is a commodity. Copper is a commodity. So we, when you're talking about the basic building blocks of an economic system, commodities, is, is you're talking about the, the bulk things that make up those building blocks. It is very, very confusing and potentially dangerous to your portfolio, however, to think of all commodities the same. They're not. So you have to break commodities in your mind into different types of commodities. And as you know, for listeners of this program know, I have been saying for many months, the commodities that I like being invested in right now are food-based commodities. Corn, wheat, soybeans. Uh, we've been we've been saying I don't, how are, when did we start telling people about the, the agricultural commodities? Oh, probably at least a year ago. I would okay, think. so yeah. just if you take the price of corn and wheat alone, soybeans, those commodities have doubled in the last six months. So if you've been invested as I am in those commodities, you'd have done very well. Conversely, I've, I've warned people: be careful of buying into commodities like metals. Uh, we've we've at times recommended gold as a precious metal, as a store of value. Uh, we said it was uh, a buy at a price below a thousand. We since five fifty an ounce, we were pushing it as a buy up to a thousand. When it got to a thousand, we said hmm, it can go either way. It could go up or it could go down. I can see it, it can go in either directions. Lead everybody make their own choice. And it's pretty much gone sideways for the last five months. Uh, there are people who think it's going to go up dramatically if inflation really kicks in. There are other people, major scientists and economists, who believe that inflation is not going to kick in that high, in which case gold will continue to go sideways. It might even come down a little bit. But I don't think gold is going to move enough up or enough down to either buy or sell. So if you got it, hold it. If you're really nervous about what's coming, you might want to buy some more gold because there are enough ominous clouds on the horizon that I could see any one of them creating a real hiccup, at which point the price of gold could go from where it is today up easily two, three, four hundred dollars an ounce more. And some people think it go all the way to two thousand an ounce. So gold is a commodity. Silver, we've warned people against silver for months. And I'm glad we did as recently as the last show because uh we told people it was a bubble and bubble the bubble burst. It it it, it silver dropped thirty six, thirty seven percent in five weeks ago. Um, we don't like silver for a whole bunch of reasons I can explain. There are other precious metals. Uh, I was in a conversation with a, with a very sophisticated investor just yesterday, and he was asking me why on this show I don't recommend things like platinum as an example of precious metal. And I said, well, actually, I love platinum because platinum is not only rarer than gold, but it's tied to fuel cells. So if fuel cells would really kick in, the demand for platinum would kick in, and it would be much more uh, – and the other, the other industrial demands are platinum as well. But my point is those industrial demands or lack thereof tend to drive the price of those kinds of metals, which is why I don't want unsophisticated people to get in and out of them. Commodities, if you just limit it to the grains, to food commodities, you can't really go wrong over the long haul because climate change is making the likelihood of more and more food shortages highly, highly, highly likely. In fact, it's a certainty. When you and I'd like to remind, Ronaldo, I'd also like to remind our viewers that the initial 
round of riots that started off this whole what we call Arab Spring in, in North Africa and the Mideast began with food riots in Tunisia because the price of grains had skyrocketed, making it almost impossible for the average family to feed itself. And this is an indirect result of all of these Absolutely. shortages. It's, people products. don't realize that's, that's what's going on in Syria. Syria's breadbasket is now a desert because of climate change. They can't grow food there. So the Syrians have, have had real food shortages. But for that, the strong arm of Assad would have kept everybody enslaved indefinitely. Uh, you know, don't don't ignore the possibility that what some call the Syrian caliphate will be chipped away at by Turkey. I wouldn't be surprised if Turkey took, takes a chunk of northern Syria and does it because it's got so many Syrians fleeing to Turkey, particularly Kurdish Syrians. So the Turkish generals are already planning for that. I mean, the, the point of this, the, the, the food, the scarcity of food commodity is also compounded by the unwise use of food for biofuels. So, for example, in the U.S., I believe 25% of the U.S. corn crop goes to the insane production of ethanol. Now, ethanol made from sugarcane, I think, has very – I can make a very strong case it's a good thing. Made from corn is crazy. So you're taking 25% of the total corn grown in America, which is the exporter of corn, and you take it off the marketplace, all of a sudden the rest of the corn is more expensive. So one of the things that you can bet on, for certain, going forward for the next five or ten years, certainly the next five years, I'll say, is that the cost of food will go up. And the strife that is created by that going up will also continue. So you've got three things you can depend on are going to happen in the next five years, and this you can bank on. Number one, water will become more scarce, and people will start to fight over it. Two, food will become more scarce, and people will start to fight over it. And three, the price of food and water will go up. We touched last show on how can you invest in water. We'll talk about it if anybody wants to give me a question, because there are many ways that you can literally invest in water. Secondly, we've talked about how you can invest in food, and that is, of course, by investing in the fact that the value of food will go up and up over time. I want to touch on just one other point, and that is, is it moral to make money investing in commodities like food commodities? Well, what you're investing in is the rising price of food. And my answer to that is yes, it's perfectly okay, and here's why. In some ways, the price of food was made to be cheaper than it really ought to be by the inappropriate use of fertilizers and by forms of farming that are destroying the soil. So what we did is, in order to get something super, super cheap, in effect, unsustainably cheap, we were willing to tolerate damage to our agricultural sectors, and in the process got cheaper food in the short run. That's going to change now. Because the damage we're creating to our agricultural sectors, including climate change damage, which is taking hundreds of millions of acres out of production every year. Right now, there are corn fields in Missouri that are underwater, which means the corn is not going to market. You can be sure that the pressure on food prices over time will grow. And if you know that's going to happen, what you want to do is being investing in the side of things that you know that will go up and have your money there rather than investing in the side of things that may or may not fluctuate. So, although there's another interesting sideline to all of this on the issue of corn, we have been feeding corn to cows for probably 40 to 50 years now. That's not a natural, normal food for cows to eat. Right. We grow enormous amounts of this, serve it to them in feedlots with other additives mixed in, and that waste material that the cows kick off is one of the other contributors to global warming. 
So we are gassing up cows with the wrong food that they don't naturally digest well. Yeah, it's the, it, yeah, it's the methane the release, by the way. The, what right. you're referring to is that the cows release inordinate amounts of methane because of that corn diet. Right. And you're correct. And methane, just to remind people, is 60 times more destructive of the environment on initial release than is CO2. Now, right. the benefit even of methane release our, is that it deteriorates quicker. Hmm? Right. So even in, re- in raising our, our, our food productivity through the use of corn, we're also contributing to the overall decline yeah, of the health it, it, of it, our, You know what? Here's planet. another example. Here's an example. And, and by the way, I think this is going to grow, so this is something if you – it's hard to find a way to invest in, but if you want to send me a question, I'll give you some ideas how to do this. Look at the regeneration of buffalo or bison in America. And interestingly enough, bison can, 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 could be re- regenerated in many parts of the world, not just America. Now, buffalo is 100% natural and organic. It only eats grass, nothing else. It doesn't have any corn. Therefore, it doesn't have the methane release problem. On top of that, it's leaner to eat than skinless chicken. Leaner than skinless chicken. has the same protein as beef and tastes really good. I love buffalo. It's one of the most natural things anybody could eat. And it turns out these animals are huge. They don't require any kind they, they don't require antibiotics. You basically turn them out when they're small, let them run for a couple of years, and then you pick them up and that's it. They're off to the to the butcher shop. My point is there are ways for us to create protein sources that are hugely efficient. There's nothing more efficient for converting grass to protein than a buffalo. None in the world. Now, we know that exists. Some of our st- smartest entrepreneurs, Ted Turner, who's the, the largest single landowner in America, he, d- he realized 10, 15 years ago that a resurgence in buffalo consumption would not only be good for America, it's good for the planet. Oh, you can make a lot of money doing it. Now, in the case of Ted Turner, he was also lucky because by owning all that land, as more natural gas was found, he's, he's found out that his two main sources of revenue are buffalo and natural gas. But that said, uh, Ted was right to see buffalo coming. And we all need to see that. And we have to start asking ourselves, why do we support industries, and we do, with subsidies again, that use inefficient forms of agronomy, or in the case of cattle, animal husbandry, to, cre- to create a form of protein which is worse to clog our arteries, creates medical costs, and doesn't taste any better. So the answer's got to be, oh, well, I just like the taste of fat in my mouth. Well, you know what? If you want to su- suck on a cube of butter, I guess it could taste tasty to some people, but to me it sort of tastes like sucking on a cube of butter. I'd rather have something that's a great protein source. And clearly with climate change where it's at uh, globally, we've got to address this. We've got to because we aren't going to – our fisheries are all crashing, which is the biggest single source of protein on the planet for most humans. So we've got to start developing more efficient ways to create more protein and feeding corn and food grains to animals like cows clearly isn't one of them when you've got 7 billion people. Ronaldo, I do have one question that came in by email that I wanted to rephrase and ask you, and this one is about uh, the pressure um, in the Republican Party to deny global warming as a fact um, and that they've been recently pressuring, um, I'm just blanking on his name, the governor, former governor of Massachusetts, Romney, yeah. uh, pressuring him to denounce his prior stands where he actually said that global warming is real. What do you make of all that? And where do you think that's going to lead? Where do I make of it? Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a bigger question, and that's a political question. But what you're really asking is, it's not a question about Republicans, I don't think. 
I, I think, um, and I've had the good fortune of knowing a lot of Republicans, and I, I think the Academy historically has probably had a majority of its members have been Republicans over time. Uh, so I don't think it's a Republican question, it's, it, it, even though it seems like it is. The real question is how long will we allow a very small percentage of the public, i.e. the Tea Party, to knock reasonable and responsible Republican candidates out of the race so that all you're left with are screamers and people who then keep the Republican Party hostage to what clearly by three-quarters of the American public's assessment is a crazy agenda. So it, 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 the, the, the simple answer on what do I think about people who deny climate change is, if you still don't realize climate change is real, I've got nothing more to say to you. Because you know what? You've made up your mind for things that have nothing to do with facts. And so me quoting you facts isn't going to change your mind, because obviously you don't care to know. So to me, if you say, you know, you think the world is flat, I'm not going to argue with you because it really isn't worth it. It's round. If you don't know that, okay, God bless. I'm not going to spend my energy trying to convince you otherwise. If you don't know that climate change is real, there's, I mean, and, and there are in, there's endless sources of information that I could – and as you know, I'm a student of climate change. I could quote study after study after study after study, and of the top 2,000 climatologists in the world, 1,994 – all agree. Only six work for the oil companies. So it's really clear. It's no issue with climate change. It exists. It's real. It's man-made. And if we don't deal with it, it will kill. And I want people to hear this number. Howard, in less than 75 years, it will kill six billion people. So when you're willing to say that you're willing to look at the other way, at the imminent death of six billion people in 75 years or less, and that's the number, and it will destroy human civilization as we know it, without a doubt. Then you've got to say, you know, if people don't want to know more about that and, and, and know the science behind that statement, then there's not much you can do for it. When I've been saying for 14 years, never challenged once by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, even though I say it to their face, I say it in front of the American Bar Association, I say it in writing, I've said for 14 years, every nuclear power plant in America off-gasses carcinogenic levels of strontium-90. It is causing people to die in the safe and normal operation. Forget a Fukushima. In safe and normal operation. And yet, no one's willing to look at the science behind that statement, including the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, because they know that I'm right. They know what their standard is. So I, I really want people to recognize, if they ever hear something that they think isn't correct, whether it's climate change on this show or my allegations of what the industry, nuclear industry is doing on a regular, routine basis, totally apart from catastrophic failures, which has had many of them, then go do some work. Send in a question. Send me something that's a piece of data that you want me to analyze for you. But go do some work. Go do the hard work that I do every day to keep up on all these subjects because I believe the information is there if you want it. If you don't want to read it, arguing with you isn't going to help me or you. Right. Let me remind our listeners again, too, that a lot of these topics are covered on the World Business Academy site, and that is www.worldbusiness.org. And I'll also throw in a reminder, since we're getting near the end of our show today, that next month we're back on our usual Thursday schedule. That's July 14th. Uh, we'll be back on the air at 11 a.m. Pacific time. Ronaldo, as we enter the last few minutes of this show, uh, any final you know, thoughts? Before, before you, uh, yeah, I won't give you final thoughts, but you know, I just want to touch on something you just said, Howard, because it's just an example of I often will say, gee, Howard, wasn't it six months or nine months or a year ago we did X, Y, and Z? And I do that because I want people to know that they will hear it here first, and they can apply that information 
to their own economic well-being, as well as to their personal and social well-being. But I was just, I just want to end with it. We did a story on fracking, which I talked about earlier today, right? And we yes. talked about how dangerous it was in currents. And the reason I mentioned this is because you were just talking about you can see this on the Academy website in currents. Now, currents is free to anybody who wants to get it once a month. In February of 2011, we did a story, and we talked about the 32.2 million gallons of fluids containing diesel and other highly carcinogenic fuels that went into fracking. We talked about the 19 states where it's a huge problem. In two shows ago, I mentioned that there's actually huge problems with carcinogenic issues, cancer issues, in the middle of Texas. And I've been talking about this now in articles going back since 1986 on one or more of these subjects. The fracking, of course, is just a new one. But what I'm saying in this comment is, please, get a free copy of Currents. Read it. If there's something in there you think is really great, let us know. If there's something in there you're not sure about or you think you've got some questions on, let us know that too. We exist to help get good information out into the world. That's the only reason we do this. As neither Howard and I draw a penny of salary or any kind of income from the World Business Academy. We do this because we care enough to do our homework so we can share the results with you. And we hope that you'll be engaged enough by the things that we're talking about that you will choose to want to be better informed rather than less informed. And from that better source of information, you will actually choose to make a difference. That's why we call this show a commentary on business and society. Because business cannot operate apart from society, and society cannot operate effectively without conscious business. So maybe that's where I should leave it for today, is a plea for everybody listening to get some of their friends to come listen to, and a plea for greater activity, because we now live at a time, you know, Sir Edmund Burke said it well, back in the, I guess, 1700s, all that is necessary for evil to triumph is that good men and women shall do nothing. And it's, so now we know, less than 15 years, 1.3 billion people will not have water. Are we willing to let that happen? Or are we willing to start doing something about it? Are we willing to let oil run geopolitically the entire global economic system and our country as well? Or are we willing to take our future back into our hands? Are we willing to continue to live in an economy that grinds further and further down because of the greed of a few and because we were too lazy to take the responsibility of the many to create the society that we wanted to live in rather than the one that gets there by default when greedy people run it? When you ask these kinds of questions, there can be only one answer. And if you choose not to answer at all, that itself is an answer. So remember, there's no such thing as trying on this one. Everybody's got to throw their hat in the ring and get to work because we have enormous challenges, all of which, to answer your question because I am an optimist, all of these challenges are surmountable. But we must take action. I hope everybody is stimulated even just one little small part by these shows to do that. And if they are, then these efforts in this show has been worthwhile. It will achieve its objective. Thanks, Howard. Ronaldo, thank you very much for that. And again, a reminder, next month we're back on Thursday, 11 a.m. Pacific Time. That's July 14th. And with that, I'd like to thank you all for listening and participating in today's call. And again, questions, go to the Academy website uh, and shoot us a note. We'd love to hear from you again. Thank you very much, and have a good month. Bye-bye. Ronaldo, are you still there? With the Lucky Land Plus, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.